church. You know that prayer has been at the heart of the move of God that we've witnessed over the past 30 plus years, including thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. Prayer changes things. It is powerful and effective, not because so much about prayer itself, but because the God we pray to is powerful and effective and able to do far more than we could ask or think. Amen? Over the last couple of years, I've shared with you and our staff that I believe that God wants to do a new thing in us and through us as a church. And in preparation for that, he's calling us to fuel the, the, fan, uh, the flames of prayer uh, in our individual lives and our life as a church. And this past week, uh, we got a taste of that through three powerful days of scripture-fed, spirit-led, and worship-based teaching and ministry uh, at the Prayer Awakening Conference uh, held here at Center Street. And the person who oversees and leads this ministry is our guest speaker this weekend. Daniel Henderson has been in pastoral ministry for over three decades. And during that time, God began using him uh, to bring prayer-based revitalization to a number of churches, which ultimately led to a new calling for his life. Now as president of Strategic Renewal and the global director of the 6-4 Fellowship, Daniel is dedicating his full-time efforts to help pastors and congregations around the world experience renewal and to develop a culture of prayer in their churches. Daniel is the author of many books, including his latest, which you'll want to get a hold of, uh, Praying Through the Psalms. And we look forward to the message that he has for us today from God's Word. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Henderson. Thanks so much. Give him, give him heaven. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, good morning to all of you, and I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, our message is titled, God's Purposes in Our Pain. As you're turning there, my deepest thanks to Pastor Henry and the team here. Uh, you allowed people from 20 states and seven provinces and a number of nations to invade your space. These last few days, your team of volunteers has been wonderful, and uh, it is so good to be back in Calgary, but particularly here at Center Street, and to see God at work in such a wonderful way. I really kind of want to stick around for a few weeks, just see those cool toilets outside, you know, those washrooms. That, that looks really, really exciting, so maybe I'll fly back in just to have that experience. Nonetheless, uh, I do want to introduce you to the most important people in my life, and you'll see them on the screen. This is my family. Uh, seated next to me is my wife. Tomorrow's our 41st anniversary, and she's here in this service, and uh, very grateful for her faithfulness, her love. Amen. And uh, then our children. In the middle is our oldest son. He likes to stand on his tiptoes to be taller than everybody else. You know, you always have one of those. Uh, he is a full-time missionary to Native American youth in northern Wyoming and southern Montana. He and his wife, Krista, and five children are mixed in there. Our second son over on your right, I think it is, is Jordan. He helped lead worship this weekend. He is a worship pastor here in the Calgary area. He and his wife have four children. And uh, then over on 
On your left is my daughter, uh, married to Atlee, and they have two boys. Uh, she's a hairstylist. She does a really good job. I'm not one of her main customers, but she is really excellent. Uh, anything. A funny thing about our family, I married a pastor's daughter. My oldest son married a pastor's daughter. My middle son married a pastor's daughter. And our son-in-law married a... You're quick this early in the morning. Yeah, you figured that out. So we have a little pastoral inbreeding going on, but the grandkids are normal so far, and we're really grateful for that and uh, very proud of all of them. Also want to just share with you briefly if there are some ways we can serve you personally. We have an app. Everybody's got an app these days, right? But uh, it is uh, Strategic Renewal. If you want to take a picture of that QR code, you can, or just go to Google Play or Apple, whatever it is. But on there, there are lots of opportunities to pray the Scripture, audio prayers, praying through the Psalms, uh, guides how to pray the, pray the Word of God. We have a Facebook Live for people all around the world, literally on Monday mornings, who pray for 30 minutes from the Scripture. And just a lot of ways we'd love to encourage you, whether you are a person, we used to say person in the pew, person in the theater seat, or you are a church leader, either way, we would love to encourage you along the line. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. I love to stand in honor of God and his word. Would you stand with me as we read together? I'll read aloud. You follow along, reading from the English Standard Version here. Maybe a little different from the one you have, but uh, hopefully helpful as we share together. The Apostle Paul writes these words. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And would you pray with me one more time? So, Father, in Jesus' name, and by your indwelling Spirit, who inspired this very word and now lives within your children to help us understand fully what you meant by what you said and to give us the power to apply it and live it for the glory of Christ. I pray that you would now give your servant understanding, unction, and utterance, understanding of what you want to deliver now in this moment, Unction to say it in the power of your spirit, utterance to make it clear to your people, so that the living seed of the word of God would fall on the fertile soil of our hearts and bring forth fruit that will ultimately bring glory to you as it produces transformation in us and enables us to serve as agents of gospel transformation in this world. So we commit it to you now for the sake of your kingdom and the honor of your son. Amen and amen. You may be seated. If you were with us over the, the week at the conference at all, uh, I did a, a session and I talked about uh, what they have described over the decades as my Danielisms. Uh, these are one-liners. Uh, people think it's a note of brilliance, it's actually an intellectual handicap. I can only remember one sentence at a time, so I just keep repeating it. Uh, I, I said in the session, I want these on my tombstone, right? They, they're important to me. My kids are all in ministry. They complain they don't have money to put this on my tombstone but I've discovered they now have QR codes on tombstones. So now some of these that I've said over the years, maybe you'd appreciate, are things like the comfort zone is the danger zone. God has tailor-made grace for everything you face. Discouragement is a temporary loss of perspective. The heart cannot taste what the eyes have not seen. The only performance that counts is the last one, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, all right? Uh, 
But the one that I want to share with you this morning as we step into this text is this one. And I believe it to be true. The worst of times are really the best of times. They just don't feel like it at the time. (laughs) The worst of times are really the best of times. They just don't feel like it at the time. Now, that's assuming we have a biblical worldview. We have a high view of God. We understand the grace and goodness of the Lord. Because for some of us, the worst of times become worser. I know that's not a word. But in the grace of God, they can be redeemed by the Lord's wonderful love and mercy toward us and produce amazing fruit, as we're going to see in the text today. Just to set a sense of context, this letter was written to Paul's problem church, the Corinthians. Not his first letter. He'd spent 18 months with them, and uh, they seemed to always be misbehaving in a lot of ways. And now he is having to write to them in order to win their hearts back to the gospel. Because some false teachers had, entered, teachers had entered the church, and they were trying to win the hearts of the Corinthians to their personality, their ideas, their teaching. And so Paul in this letter gets very raw and real. There was a time in my early 30s when I really wanted to leave pastoral ministry. It was hard. We were broken. I decided I'm just going to go get a real job, make money, and support some other person, Right? But the Lord kept us in ministry for a variety of reasons, one of which was during that hard season, I was teaching through this book. And I began to realize what it is to have a real heart for the gospel, what it means to endure hardship, what it means to have a high view of God in the worst of times. And Paul really begins this letter with that very perspective. I want to share three thoughts from the overall text today. And the first is this great truth, that God is a merciful, purposeful comforter. God is a merciful, purposeful comforter. Now, this is really found in the opening verses, which we won't take a lot of time with because we're going to focus on verses 8 through 11. But but in verses 3 through 7, Paul really lays what I would describe as the biblical foundation that will help all of us make sense of his own very difficult journey. And he begins so beautifully, I call it worship-based prayer, He begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He is blessing God for his amazing mercy and comfort, but note, he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that God wants to deliver to us of his mercy and his comfort and his encouragement comes through the person and the gospel of Jesus. And so I just say to you right now, if you're here today and you're not sure where your standing is with God, you're not sure if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you're not sure if you have eternal life, all that we're going to say can be yours when you are willing to turn away from the sin that has wrecked your life, the independence that has made you miserable, and put your faith entirely on what Jesus did on the cross for you. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he goes on to say, not reading it all, but giving you the summary. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. I think that kind of covers the basis. There is all comfort in all affliction. And he goes on to talk about the reality of the journey that all of us are involved in in this life. There is affliction. There is suffering. The word he uses here, affliction, literally means pressure. It's a word that made sense from the standpoint that in old England, they would put heavy weights on certain condemned criminals until they were literally pressed to death. Would you agree with me? Life has pressure. 
Some of you have was asked for hands today. Are you feeling intense pressure today? A lot of you'd raise your hands. If you didn't raise your hands, you just came out of a season of that. And if you didn't raise your hand then, guess what? Tomorrow's coming. Life was full of pressure, full of strain, and it hits us in our job, our marriage, our finances, our kids, and in so many ways. In fact, this idea of affliction and suffering is mentioned seven times in verses 3 through 7. Paul's just kind of setting the table of reality But he's really introducing a greater reality, and that is that we have a God of all comfort. This word comfort is the idea that uh, there is more than just comforting support. It's more than an upgrade on your upcoming flight. It's more than a sleep number bed. We think of comfort in those terms. The word literally means a strengthening. Uh, The Latin word means to be brave. And so God imparts to us in the midst of our pressures and our afflictions a sense of comfort, bravery, and strength that is supernatural. One translation says this, the God from whom all help comes. Amen? So our hurt may be great, but God's strength and comfort is greater. And Paul, setting that context now, begins to unpack for them the reality of his own journey. Jesus made it very clear in John 16, this same truth. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. We know that. But be of good cheer, right? I have overcome the world. And so through Jesus, how does he do that? He overcomes by helping us with comfort and strength and bravery in the midst of sometimes the hardest of times. But at times we're missing that, aren't we? We get so wrapped up in our pain, so absorbed in our struggle, so overwhelmed by pressure, we forget what God wants to do in that moment. It's kind of like the lady, the older lady who decided to go to aerobic class finally. Her friend called her after the first class and said, how'd it go? She said, well, it was a big disappointment. I'm probably not going to go back. Honestly, I twisted, I hopped, I jumped, I stretched, I pulled, I groaned, I sweated profusely. And by the time I got those leggings on, the class was over. (laughs) You know, sometimes we're so wrapped up in the moment, we forget what the purpose is. But in the midst of our struggle and pain, God wants to make it very clear that he wants to pour comfort, strength, and bravery into our souls. His purpose, by the way, seen in this text briefly, is to make us more like Jesus. If you have your Bible open, just a simple line in verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we serve a Savior who had to go through the journey of intense suffering in order to bring us the glorious truth of the gospel and new life. And as we walk in his steps, we too suffer. First Peter talks about that. We used to love these WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? We have to realize the the biblical context of that is he would suffer, and he would trust himself to God who judges righteously, and he would receive all the grace he needed to go to the cross. So literally, we are entering into the very life and gospel of Christ as we are going through these pains and sufferings. Paul calls them the same sufferings doesn't mean that my pain's exactly like your pain. It means that we're all on the same journey to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus. But there's another reality in these opening verses that helps us make sense of it all, and that is the purpose is to make us more effective ministers of Jesus. 
Paul makes it very clear, as I'm receiving comfort, as you're receiving comfort, in the midst of your affliction, it is so that when others come into your life who are going through affliction and difficulty, you now have grace, wisdom, and experience, trust, and an understanding as to how you can help them. Maybe you've prayed somewhere along the line, God, use me. God, use me. That's basically saying, Lord, take me through some affliction. Because the truth is, for him to use us, he has to refine us. He has to work in our hearts, and he has to give us a deeper understanding of who he is. Verse 6 says that we can patiently endure. And sometimes that's the Christian life, patiently enduring It's not, as one writer said, the spirit of a marathon runner, or rather, it is the spirit of a marathon runner, not a victim in a dentist chair. We're not victims in this life, but we are enduring patiently as God strengthens us and uses us. He wants to make you a thoroughfare of his comfort, not a cul-de-sac, right? And so he is working in us to make us more effective ministers of the gospel. The great preacher from England, Charles Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle says it so well, if I could just quote him, he says it this way, there is no learning sympathy. He might say, man, I'd love to be more sympathetic. Well, hang on, here it goes, except by suffering. It cannot be studied from a book. It must be written on the heart. You must go through the fire if you want to have sympathy with others who tread the glowing coals. You must yourself bear the cross if you would feel for those whose life is a burden to them. Kind of the takeaway here is God never wastes our pain, and neither should we. We indeed can be stewards of all that God is allowing in our life, but more so all that he's pouring into our life so that we would be like Jesus and be more effective ministers of the gospel. But now, having laid that foundation, Paul kind of drills deeper, and he kind of puts skin on this truth, his own skin, talking about his own journey. And we see here now that God allows, second thought, overwhelming purposeful affliction. Overwhelming purposeful affliction. You probably say, man, I'm glad I came to church to learn that today, right? But there's hope in this. There's grace in this. We see what he says in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware. In light of these truths, brothers, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of, of how this has played out in our lives. And by the way, notice all the pronouns are plural here. He's not on a solo journey. He's going through this with other fellow ministers who can help him and work with him in the midst of the affliction. But he says, I want you to see the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, let's stop right there. As Paul was planting churches, uh, it's not specific as to what this affliction was. We We can imagine, based upon other things he said, that it might have been persecution, it might have been physical illness, it might have been weariness, it might have been some antagonist who just kept dogging him all the time. We don't know. It's kind of like later in the book when, again, he gets raw and real and he talks about his thorn in the flesh. You remember that? And, of course, there's a hundred theories as to what that is, but he's not specific. Why is that? Because if it was just persecution, only people going through persecution would see that this is relevant. It's the general reality that we go through affliction. Paul's saying, I went through an affliction, and and let me tell you what it was like. Read on here. He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. There's a common slogan out there today. God will never put more on you than you can bear. Anybody ever heard that before? 
My response to that statement is a really profound Greek word, hogwash. You can find that in the Greek. No, you can't. I hate to tell you, that's really not true. Paul would disagree with that entirely based on what he's saying right here. Notice what he says. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, indeed, emphasizing even more the reality, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul's literally saying we thought we were either going to be taken out or have to tap out. We didn't think we could go on. The affliction was so heavy. We were so pressured. We are so overwhelmed. We really didn't think we were going to get through this. The reality is God took him through it, and he learned a lesson through it all. And notice the purpose in verse 9. Again, our pain always has a purpose. We've already seen in the foundational truth it's to make us like Jesus. It's to make us more effective ministers of the gospel. But now gets, Paul gets very real and honest about what needed to happen in his own heart and what needs to happen in our hearts when we're going through times of affliction. Verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. There used to be an old show in the United States called Let's Make a Deal. Maybe it aired here in Canada, a guy named Monty Hall. And it was classic because you had door number one, door number two, door number three, right? Hope you made a good choice. In this context, there's two doors. Self-reliance or God who raises the dead. Now, that seems to make an easy choice for us, but not so much, right? And let me just insert a gospel truth here, by the way. When we come to Christ, that's the fundamental choice we make. I'm going to stop relying on myself, my religion, my good works, my efforts to be a better person, my attempts to figure it all intellectually and then try to be the master of my own destiny. I'm going to stop relying on myself. And now, having understood Jesus Christ died, buried, risen again, I'm going to trust in the God who raises the dead. And friends, everything changes, doesn't it? But here's the deal. It's not only true in salvation, it's true in what we call a big biblical word, sanctification. Because even Paul, who had been gloriously saved on the road to Damascus, I mean, he saw Jesus, that dude got saved, right? But now, in the midst of ministry, the very apostle Paul himself is still having to relearn the lesson, Paul, don't depend on yourself, but depend on God who raises the dead. Oh, what a choice that is. Another one of my Danielisms, I think, is number 14 on the list. I don't know. But it's very simply this. You know, the hardest thing about the Christian life is it is so daily. <laughs> Would you agree with that? The hardest thing about the Christian life is it is so daily. And we are constantly learning and growing and having to make the right choices. And so now Paul is saying, in light of the God of all comfort, the reality of our afflictions, becoming more like Jesus and being more effective ministers, God took me through this incredible moment so that I could learn once again not to rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead. He knew what Jeremiah had said, just to add a little bit of biblical undergirding to this point. You see it on the screen. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. Doesn't that look exciting? Turn to your neighbor, tell him, don't be a shrub, would you? Yeah, just remind him. Don't be this guy. Don't be a shrub. Don't be this lady. What's the point? 
Well, because this shrub in the desert will not see any good come. And whether you have not yet trusted Christ and you're relying on yourself and you're feeling like, man, my life is dried up, I have no purpose, I feel like a shrub in the desert, or you are a believer who is failing to walk with God on a regular basis and you're feeling dry and worn out, no surprise, it's very clear right here. But here, friends, is the alternative, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Wow. Door number one, door number two. Self-reliance or trusting God who raises the dead. God is calling us to experience the fullness of all that he wants to do in us through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But many times he has to peel our fingers away from our self-reliance. And that can have a lot of different forms. It can be just relying on our own intelligence, isolating ourselves, bitterness, anger, neglect. Rely on God who raises the dead. So when God strips away our self-reliance, he is leading us to a glorious conclusion, and that is, if you look at verse 10, deliverance, deliverance. God wants to intervene in the midst of our pain to show us his great deliverance, also translated as rescue or redemption. Notice verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In essence, Paul is saying, past tense, present tense, future tense, if I can learn to trust on God who raises the dead, I'm going to experience a life of powerful deliverance. Wow. I need that. You need that. Every day we have to make that choice. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Again, if there's anything in this world for which I bless him more than for anything else, This sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? It is for pain and affliction. Why? He says, I'm sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifest to me. I love this line. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Wow. Maybe you're there right now. I've been there many times. I already referenced a time early in my ministry when things were so hard I wanted to quit. My wife and I were hurt, devastated. People were harsh. I had followed a situation where my predecessor had been there for uh, 28 years, the last eight of which he'd been involved in indiscretions and affair, and the the church just blew up. I remember sitting in L.A. with my boss at the time reading it in the L.A. Times, and I said to him, man, I feel sorry for whoever takes that church. Little did I know it would be me. (laughs) And at the ripe age of 30, I stepped in there. They're involved in a $25 million lawsuit that predated my arrival. Uh, they'd lost half of their tenants, half of their giving. I, I had a tiger by the tail, that's for sure. I was there four years. I always tell people I was there as long as he was because four years in dog years equaled his 28 years, right? <laughs> I remember our elders knowing how hard it was sent us to a retreat center to meet with a couple that specialized in helping those in ministry. And while my wife was meeting with the, the wife of this couple, I was downstairs having it out with God. 
And I was mad at God. I was hurt. I was upset at all that happened with, my, with these people and how it hurt my wife, how it hurt me, how it hurt the gospel. And I wrote a poem. I won't share it to you now. It was called The Wound. And I had to process this woundedness. I had to lay it before the Lord. And I had to realize that my need in that moment was to look to Jesus, whose suffering brought my salvation. And who, while he hung on a cross, was able to look out, though he did nothing wrong to deserve it, and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that became a moment of breakthrough and freedom for me. And maybe you're here today and you need to look to Jesus in the midst of your pain and realize that I need the life of Christ to flourish within me to grant forgiveness and grace and mercy and to trust him in the midst of this affliction so that I can be delivered and I can be restored and this pain can be redeemed for God's glory. Amen. I often say it this way. Another Danielism, I guess. But by God's grace, our open wounds become tender scabs, but ultimately empowering scars. Paul, after all he had gone through, is able to say, Let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body a theological degree that I'm proud of. No, that's not what he said. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. You see, our wounds are our marks of credibility, and they are the places where God uses us most powerfully if we can understand what's being said in this text today. Let me share one final thought, and obviously you would expect I would get to the idea of prayer. But verse 11, here's what Paul now reminds us of, and that is that God expects extraordinary purposeful prayer. God expects extraordinary purposeful prayer. Notice what he says in verse 11, you also. Now, he must have sent this to southern Corinth Because in the original Greek, as we say down south in America, all y'all, all all right? All y'all also. It's plural. He's referring to the church gathered, not just individuals in their prayer closet. He's referring to the church gathered in prayer, which again was really the the whole emphasis of so much of what Jesus taught. Uh, One of my mentors makes it very clear there's no I in the Lord's prayer. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. They're all plural. And, of course, their, their closet was the upper room at Pentecost where they gathered together and they continued to see the gospel advance as they prayed together. People sometimes ask, well, Daniel, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? My answer is yes. So it's asking, like asking, which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? In Western culture, we have amputated our corporate prayer leg. The average North American believer is rarely involved in corporate prayer meetings with other people. But the reality is, we need the balance of both. D.A. Carson said, the only way you really learn to pray is by praying with other people who know how to pray. And that requires us to be together in prayer, trusting God together in prayer. I teach at a Christian seminary back east, and there are a lot of South Korean students there. And they've often asked, why do you Americans pray by yourself? (laughs) Doesn't even make sense to them that we're trying to slug it out on our own. When we could be gathering in prayer, praying for one another, trusting God collectively. And Paul is envisioning literally many faces uplifted to God in united chorus. He says, you all, all y'all must help us by your prayers so that many will give thanks on our behalf. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many The church is gathered praying for Paul, and he knew that was a delivery system of this amazing comfort that God was continuing to give to him and the deliverance that was being provided. Over the years as a pastor, I had prayer partners who prayed for me, my wife, our family every day. 
I always said, you know, that's a win-win because I need the prayer and you need the practice. So let's keep doing that, right? <laughs> At the end of our conference, I encourage those attending, pray for your pastor. Gather together. Pray for your church leaders. For one reason, it's hard to be a critic and an intercessor at the same time because God changes you when you pray. But there's other reasons behind that, and Paul now digs into that. He said, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing that comes. I want to just emphasize this point. When Christians pray together, they choose a life of coincidence, not just coincidence. We use the word coincidence saying, oh, that was a coincidence. No, that kind of randomly happened. Let me tell you, when we pray together, it's a life of coincidence. What do you mean, Daniel? Well, we go through struggle. We go through strain. We have affliction. That's an incident. Then we have another incident, and that is that, that we are struggling with this affliction, and we realize, I can't do this. I'm at the end of myself. And then God opens our eyes for the need of deliverance. We invite others to pray, and now God does great things. Coincidence, because we pray. I've noticed that Christians who don't pray together very often can be heard saying, well, isn't it nice that that worked out? <laughs> Christians who do pray together regularly can, heard, can be heard saying, isn't it awesome what God did? And we were a part of it. God today is inviting us to step into the arena of prayer together so that in the midst of all that God wants to do, we can be a part of it and can see him at work. And there's an outcome here, so that. You see the word so that, two words so that. Uh, by the way, let me just sidebar. That word in the Greek is henna. Paul uses it very often. You'll begin to see it all over the place. It's a, a word of purpose. In other words, the purpose. And let me just suggest you add this to all of your prayers. Lord, today uh, I need help. Susan, would you pray for me? I'm going in for surgery. So that. Well, not just so that I don't have pain, so that should God spare my life, I can continue to serve him faithfully greater energy than before. Pray for me, I have a job interview. Good. So that, oh, so that I can provide for my family and I can be a better steward of what he trusts for me to advance the kingdom and give more to the work of the gospel. You see, there always needs to be a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, mission-fulfilling so that in all of our prayers. God did not leave us here just to be comfortable, fat, and happy, right? He left us here to be on mission with him, and our prayers need to reflect that. So here's the so that. So that, I love it. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing that God has given us through the prayers of many. What's he saying? The goal of all of this is that God receives thanks. Yes, we go for it through affliction. His comfort is even greater. He's making us like Jesus. He's making us more effective minister of the, of the gospel. Paul says, in my life, it was so hard. I came to the end of myself. I experienced great deliverance. You're praying with me, and it all ultimately results in God receiving thanks. Amen? That's the bottom line. So Why? Why is Thanksgiving so important? Last question. Why is Thanksgiving so important? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for that. Let me give an answer, all right? We see it all throughout the Bible, but in this verse, it's very clear. 1 Chronicles 16, 34, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Say it with me, for he is, say it again, he is good. Another time, he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. It was uh, the great writer Oswald Chambers who said this, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. 
That was his tactic in the garden. You can't trust what God told you. He's not good. I want to tell you many times people who get to a place of deconstructing their faith or uh, they've decided they're going to be an atheist, it's not because theologically it didn't make sense. It's not because they've somehow figured out that the resurrection didn't happen. It's not intellectual, it's emotional. They've gone through something and decided God is not good and he cannot be trusted. And that is a recipe for absolute spiritual disaster. Paul is saying in the midst of all this pain, let's get raw and real, friends. It's been hard. It's been difficult. God is at work, though. He's done a great work. I'm relying on him. I'm experiencing delivering. You're praying together. And the ultimate outcome, we give him thanks because he is good. Final illustration, two of them, actually. How many of you have ever had a surgery? Anybody at all? You ever, ever had any kind of surgery at all? Yeah, I've had several of them. You know, when it's all said and done, you know what I say to the doctor? Thank you. Thank you. Because he took something very difficult and painful and through a process that was pretty bloody probably. I wasn't awake to see it. But he allowed it to turn out good. Now, doctors aren't perfect, but God is. Now, had I awakened halfway through the surgery, I probably would have said, what in the world are you doing to me? I got blood and guts going everywhere. Man, this hurts. This is a mess, right? But I wake up at the end and I realize that what he did for me was good. And I want to tell you, you may be in the midst of your pain and your affliction. When it all comes down to it, God is good. Amen. Final story. Team's going to come out and begin to play. Pastor friend of mine, Sandy Robertson, who's actually here this weekend, he's a native Canadian, has been in Titusville, Florida, where you see all the rockets go out from Cape Kennedy or from Kennedy Space Center. One day he said, my wife and I decided to take our granddaughter, Alexa, on a trip. It was a holiday. We live about uh, 40 miles from Orlando, he says. And so we packed up, picked her up in the morning. She had no idea what we had planned. She thought it was just a day hanging out with Grandma and Grandpa. He said, our first stop was McDonald's. We grabbed, a th- we grabbed three egg McMuffins at the drive-thru and then continued on our journey. He says, well, it so happened that this McDonald's had a playland. So Alexa saw it. She said, Grandpa, can we eat inside? I want to play. No, sweetheart, we don't have time for that. She turned up the heat. She said, please, Grandpa, I really want to go inside. I hardly ever get to come here. Come on, Grandpa, why can't we eat inside? We've got time. You've heard those kinds of things from kids or grandkids. Sorry, Alexa, the answer is no. We're doing the drive-thru. Well, he writes, Alexa was not a happy camper as expected. She fussed. She complained. She accused me of not letting her have any fun. That was followed by pouting and the silent treatment for the next half hour. We continued our journey westward, and at the appropriate moment, my wife declared, pull off somewhere. I need to find a restroom. To this, I replied, well, look, there's a sign for Disney World. I'll pull off here. They'll have a public restroom at Disney World. As you can imagine, her wheels began to turn. Then came out the sheepish voice from the back saying, Grandpa, now that we're here at Disney World, do you think maybe we could go inside? Of course we're going inside, Alexa. Grandma and I had this planned right from the beginning. But if you had had your way, you would have settled for McDonald's Playland. Friend, in the midst of the journey, don't settle for McDonald's Playland. God has so much in store if you can trust him. If you can believe that he is who he said he was going to be. If you can Expect that he will provide great deliverance as he peels you away from your self-reliance. And if you can involve people in your life through prayer. After this service, there's prayer partners here. Friend, don't go it alone. 
but join together in prayer so that God may receive great thanksgiving because we give thanks to the Lord. Say it with me, for he is good. Would you stand?